Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, we stand side by side with our friends in Nova Scotia. We update you on COVID-19. It is getting better. And the price of oil, free. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, uh, dealing with a couple of different things on the plate as of uh, the weekend and the horrific stories uh, coming out of Nova Scotia. Uh, the sad, uh, the, the sad part to this story is it, it may not be over in that there could be, uh, even more victims than the 18 that, uh, have already fallen. Uh, to talk more about all of this and the tragedy and an update on what is going on in Nova Scotia, let's bring in Sarah Ritchie for Global News. She is with us now. Sarah, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. I hope you're doing well. Not a problem. Thanks, Scott. What can you say as far as an update? What more do we know today, Sarah? Uh, we're still awaiting an update from Nova Scotia RCMP. They have decided not to hold a media briefing today, so they will not be taking questions from reporters, but we expect they will send a press release later this afternoon. And as you mentioned, um, every possibility that the death toll will be higher. That's because yesterday they revealed to us that there were 16 different crime scenes being investigated throughout the province. It's about a 100-kilometer stretch of Nova Scotia that's impacted here. At least five of those contained structure fires, and they said they hadn't had the time as of yet to be able to go through and process those five scenes. So they were trying uh, their best to get through them, but they were concerned that there could be more uh, bodies inside of those scenes of the five fires. So awaiting an update on that, and then um, obviously learning as much as we can about the victims. Um, uh, getting back to the uh, original sites, that, as you mentioned, there were 16 of them. You know, to think about it, any one of these would have been tragic. Um, but to have 16, it, it almost seems overwhelming, both for uh, for law enforcement and for uh, the, the communities that are, are involved. Is there any chatter of other um, assistance coming in from other areas to help out with all of this? Yeah, there is. We we learned, actually, Global News learned uh, just about an hour ago that the Canadian military is being called in. Uh, RCMP say that they will be coming in to provide equipment, things like tents and generators and lights that are going to help uh, the officers who need to protect and process these crime scenes. It's obviously going to take them a very long time to process everything that has happened here. Um, there's about 30 Canadian Forces members coming in to provide some support. That's what we understand at this point. So uh, certainly they've called in some help there. We also know that the Nova Scotia Serious Incident Response Team has been called in to do its own investigation. That's a an independent police watchdog. And what they're going to do is they're going to be looking into two different incidents. Uh, I don't know much about them. The one incident they're looking into, of course, is the death of a shooter who was shot dead by police at a gas station in Enfield, Nova Scotia. So that incident will be investigated by CERT. That's part of their mandate is to look into any time that uh, anybody is injured or killed in a police operation. The second incident, we're not exactly sure what happened in that, but we understand that an RCMP member uh, discharged their weapon is the language they're using. We're not clear if anyone was 
um, hurt or how badly someone was hurt, I should say, because they're only called in when somebody is hurt. So there's a second incident in amid all of that chaos over the weekend that's being investigated by this independent watchdog. Uh, do we know at this time how the shooter died? Was that self-inflicted? Was that through police fire? Do we know? What we are, what we understand is that he was shot dead by police. Okay, so then obviously that's that's the need for those investigations. All right, moving to the victims. My goodness, we're just hearing all of these heart-wrenching stories, and and there doesn't seem to be any pattern here whatsoever. I mean, these are all people from all walks of life, different ages and such. It, it's it's bizarre the carnage that has been left behind. Uh, with I guess the shooter knowing some victims, but not all. Yeah, it's honestly surreal. You know, it it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense. I don't know that it ever will. It's what's so hard for people in this province and, and across the country to grasp right now. Um, we know at least 19 people are dead. We at Global News have confirmed the identities of 17 of the victims so far, and we have a story up on our website. Um, I just want to encourage all your listeners to go and read it because these are the names and the faces that we want people to remember. Um, you know, there, it's true. There, there are people from all walks of life. One RCMP officer who obviously died in the line of duty, um, and that's incredibly tragic, but so are all of the others, a family of three, including a 17-year-old girl, you know, teachers, nurses, corrections officers. It, it doesn't make any sense. I don't know that it ever will. Um, obviously, there's, there's two crises here, one being this and the other one being COVID-19. Uh, what does this mean for memorials and funerals and this sorts of thing, these sorts of things for, for all of these people? Well, in short, it means that they're not happening. Um, you know, that's that's one of the real tragedies in all of this as well, is that as families start to come to grips with what's happened here, they're not going to be able to gather. There are restrictions to in on travel into Nova Scotia from other provinces. If you come in here, you have to self-isolate for 14 days. Um, you're not allowed to visit anyone if you, if you arrive here. So uh, people from away can't come here most likely we are not allowed to gather in groups of more than five and officials from the province addressed that yesterday in their daily COVID-19 update and said you know we're so sorry but we cannot relax these restrictions we cannot let this virus gain more of a foothold here so unclear exactly what will happen there's a virtual vigil being planned for Friday evening and that'll be really important for people to uh, come together as we stay apart. Uh, we're hearing, um, as some of these stories come out from the victims, uh, just how this whole thing transpired over the course of hours. Um, and, and now we're talking, we're hearing uh, chatter about why there wasn't some sort of emergency alert sounded beyond Twitter. Are you hearing anything in regard to that and, and why more people weren't notified, especially considering this person was impersonating an RCMP officer, allegedly? Yeah, exactly. That's a question on so many minds in Nova Scotia right now. Uh, Why didn't we get that emergency alert that goes to your cell phone that's obnoxiously loud and lets everybody know that something dangerous is occurring? We got one of them on the Easter long weekend, actually, telling us to stay home due to the virus. And so it's it's become a question that's been put to officials at at numerous different levels. Um, What I can tell you today is that yesterday when RCMP were asked about this, they said, Simply, we, we don't know why that alert didn't come out. They made mention of the fact that they use Twitter and Facebook because they have a few thousand followers on there. Obviously, not everyone in Nova Scotia is on Twitter or on Facebook. Large areas of the rural part of this province do not have good Internet access at all. So 
there are a lot of questions that need to be answered about that. We're going to keep pushing for answers from the RCMP and from the government as to why that didn't happen. And, you know, the, the tragic thing is that we're hearing from people that it's, it's entirely possible that some lives may have been saved. We heard of one victim who was just out for a walk that morning. Had she gotten an alert telling her to stay home? That may not have turned out that way. So, you know, a lot of that's one of the biggest questions going forward. Mm. Uh, what is next? What what happens in the next 24 hours are you expecting? Well, we'll get an update from RCMP that will likely include an update on the number of people who are victims in all of this. And we all are just, just hoping that that's the end of those updates to the death toll. We're also expecting RCMP at some point in the next couple of days will release to us a timeline that will help people sort of wrap their minds around what happened between 11 p.m. Saturday night and almost noon Sunday when this came to an end um, through those 16 different crime scenes and and help us gain a better picture of what was going on that night. Uh, And in the meantime, uh, families are continuing to grieve and to learn of, of their loved one's death. Sarah Ritchie has been with us. Global News. Sarah, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. I know you're busy and uh, you be well. Thank you very much. All right. uh, We'll continue on to monitor this story. And if there is any good news uh, this week as we enter week six of a COVID-19 pandemic, and that is that there is some light at the end of the tunnel, Ontario releasing uh, models yesterday, which show some positivity. And by no means is this a reason to let up on the gas. Uh, We have to keep going down as we go down this curve, the backside of this curve. Uh, we have to be just as diligent as we were on the upside, perhaps even more so, uh, because uh, the light at the end of the tunnel means less people are being confirmed as positive. The numbers aren't continuing to skyrocket. However, uh, again, uh, deaths will continue in, in places where the most vulnerable are, including long-term homes. But um, the flattening of the curve, if you want to say, or the light at the end of the tunnel in this is that the amount of new cases that uh, appear every day seems to be dropping. So that is a good sign, especially as testing uh, is ramping up across the country. Where are we now? Let's bring in Dr. Todd Coleman, PhD, Assistant Professor, Department of Health Sciences, Wilfrid Laurier University, and is with us now. Dr. Todd, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Yes, thanks for having me. And I hope you and your family are doing well during these times. Yeah, we are. Still, uh, still uh, hunkered down at home. <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah. it's, you know, it's funny listening to everybody describe it because everybody's doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, Todd, uh, your thoughts on what we heard yesterday in regard to these numbers. It appears that there is some light at the end of the tunnel, although, again, we do want to stress this is no time to take your foot off the gas. Yeah, that's right. So you can see from from some of the cases, we seem to be uh, uh, at a point where we're hitting uh, a fairly even number of new cases per day in Ontario uh, and in Canada generally. Um, and but we the the only thing is is it looks like we're close to the top of the curve. But whether or not that's going to last uh, uh, for a short time or a long time is still uh, uh, unknown. So, like you said, uh, keep our keep our uh, social distance going on, and we'll we'll see if we can get through this and see it actually going down at some point. So, what actually constitutes a peak or a flattening, or what it is that we're in now? Why are we optimistic at this point? 
Well, we're seeing uh, a fairly even number of new cases uh, uh, happening per day. So we see, for example, in Canada that we're, we're hitting that, uh, like a typical between, uh, I'm ballparking here, but 1,300 to 1,700 new cases. We're not seeing a huge upsurge, which would mean that we were still in the, the upsurge of the, the epidemic curve we're seeing sort of a, a flattening off of the new cases per day, which is somewhat dependent on the tests that are being done. But we're seeing that also in some of the other statistics, like no excessive numbers of new deaths and no excessive numbers of new hospitalizations. So the, the rates of new infections seems to be consistent, but there still are those people becoming infected. So this still is, uh, again, uh, although optimistic, perhaps I should say cautiously optimistic, um, again, it is imperative that we keep the same measures in place. Absolutely. Keeping those measures in place means that uh, we won't see an additional upsurge of cases happening so keeping with the social distancing means the probability of transmission remains uh, lower uh, than it would be if we were just resuming to our, our regular daily lives. What can we learn from company or from countries that were a little ahead of us, whether it's in Italy or or, or even China for that matter? Um, ha- have they seen any uh, signs of a, uh, a resurgence or a, a tick back? I remember uh, China was reporting that they were getting some new cases coming in. Uh, but that being said, can we learn uh, anything from those other countries that are a little ahead of us on this? Yeah, we're still, uh, unfortunately, countries like Italy and Spain are still in the, the the middle of this. They're still seeing thousands of new cases per day, and they're still seeing uh, hundreds of new deaths per day, uh, whereas we're not seeing anything like that. In terms of other countries, uh, to model ourselves after, uh, I think it's it's the idea of keeping keeping the social distancing going on and ensuring that uh, we're testing properly and then also ensuring that our healthcare workers are able to do the jobs that they need to do to keep infection from spreading. Are you more concerned at this stage about um, uh, more cases being reported or are you focusing more on those that pass away from this, those numbers rather than the amount of new cases? They, they, they tend to complement each other. So it, it's, it's important to look at both because the deaths give us a, a picture of uh, what populations, for example, might be most effective, affected by this. So we're seeing, for example, the, the outbreaks that are happening within long-term care homes. So the deaths are largely represented by those uh, smaller uh, outbreaks across the country. Uh, so that's one stat to look at. And the new cases are important to look at because those are largely going to dictate a few weeks from now whether or not we see those deaths that I just told you about. Uh, how much is how much is uh, equipment still a factor here, whether it's personal protective equipment for the frontline workers, whether it's ventilators? Are, are we making any gains? Because we, we are hearing that, that those uh, issues are be, being addressed, yet we're still hearing from frontline workers that are still having some issues. Yeah, we... Thinking about that in terms of, of the ventilators, for example, and the personal protective equipment, it's making sure that it's all in the right 
spots. For example, we know that uh, the GTA is hit, uh, being hit a little bit harder than the rest of the province uh, in terms of uh, uh, new cases and people needing to be uh, uh, hospitalized. So just because we have uh, an excess, for example, of ICU beds or ventilators doesn't mean that they're, uh, uh, they're at, not at capacity uh, in other areas. So we might see, for example, in rural areas that they're not at capacity, but some areas in the GTA are almost at capacity, which means that maybe we should think about some redistribution of some of those supplies. Hmm. Um, obviously, higher density areas, urban areas, big cities are, are going to have more cases. Is that just sheer numbers or the fact that, again, it's just high density, there's a lot of people in a smaller area? Yeah, that's exactly right. A higher density. So uh, GTA has a higher population density than the rest of the province, uh, which means a couple of things. So number one, in the GTA, uh, you're more likely if you are out uh, on the street or going out to do groceries, you're, the probability of coming into contact with more people is higher there. Uh, on top of that, the, what's called the prevalence, so the number of people who actually are infected is higher in those regions. So that also adds to the probability of coming into contact with someone who's infected. It, it's simply a, a, a matter of that population density. As you as you study this, and here we are entering week number six of this, uh, as you study this and take one step back, what surprises you the most here? What, what stands out for you? Uh, well, for Canada, I'm, I'm fairly impressed by the consistency with what we've seen in terms of new cases. Uh, we have a lot of public health staff uh, and healthcare workers working very dig- diligently on this. Uh, we've Ontario specifically has had this pandemic preparedness, uh, especially for for COVID nineteen since January. Uh, so we're sort of able to mitigate a lot of the the major spikes in cases and deaths that we've seen in other countries, uh, our neighbors to the south, for example, who have uh, almost twenty times the number of cases uh, that we have. Uh, it's just, it's very impressive to see uh, Canada being able to mitigate this, not to to discount the severity of what's going on, but it could have been uh, a lot worse at this point. And we remember when this all started, uh, the concern was exhausting hospitals that were already at capacity. Uh, And the whole idea was, you know, we saw the graph of that immediate spike was to push that down so we could spread out the amount of people infected over a longer period of time, as opposed to, say, having 10 people all rushing to the emergency ward at once. Perhaps we could keep it down to three. But as a result of that, will this last longer? So in other words, we're at this level now where we seem to be, uh, you know, maybe not down yet, but certainly a, a flat line. So we're seeing an average, the average new cases stay roughly the same, but that's still just pushing down that curve. That still means there's a lot of people out there that are infected, no? Yeah, it's right. You're exactly right on that. So what we're doing here is pushing it down, flattening it, potentially extending it to a little bit longer than what we might see uh, if right. it was allowed to go rampant in the population, 
meaning that it's that important thing that we're not overwhelming the healthcare system. So how long, by pushing this peak of this graph down, how long does that spread it out? Does that make, you know, people are saying, how do we get out of this? How far are we, you know, when is it going to be to getting out of it? But by actually pushing that curve down, we are, we're making it less severe, but we're extending the time that we're within it. Is that accurate? Yeah, that that would that would be an accurate statement. So that, the question is, how long is this going to last? We, we have no idea at this point. We're not we're not uh, uh, entirely sure. Once we start seeing, uh, even though we're at the flat point uh, of a curve, uh, I, we should wait till we start seeing actual reductions in the new numbers of cases before we make any definitive uh, conclusions about whether or not we're seeing uh, the light at the end of the tunnel. If you want to use that <laughs> phrase. Uh, anything more? We've we've obviously uh, seen uh, great ingenuity when it comes to uh, the manufacturing center and our centers and, and the research and development labs that are coming up with new testing or, or new efficient ways of doing all of this. Uh, has there been any more chatter on a vaccine or any sort of breakthroughs there at this point? We hear about uh, some vaccine research happening here and there. Um, nothing uh, conclusive at this point. Uh, what we're seeing is still likely a few months out before anything definitive can be uh, uh, announced in terms of a vaccine. Uh, will will this? Do we have any idea? And I, and I may have even asked you this before. Do we have any idea if this will be this vaccine, this this vaccination, will be delivered in the form of a flu shot, or will that this be a separate entity all to its own? And and like, can you see mass vaccinations coming? Yeah, that that's an entirely other question. Also, uh, is it going to look like a flu shot? I'm not sure. Uh, vaccine science is so complex that vaccines uh, can be developed using any uh, uh, individual portions of, of the virus uh, and different immunological responses that we might get from that. So what, what that's going to look like at this point is still pretty up in the air. But we have dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of scientists, uh, even in Canada, working on, on this kind of thing right now. Can you see, like, uh, eventually a max vac- vaccination process happening here? Or will it, it just depend. be like a it flu shot? On- Those are in high-risk areas. Yeah, so usually uh, what we see with something like the flu shot is is trying to get at uh, uh, some of the more high-risk populations, uh, even though it's recommended for the general population. So whether or not uh, it's going to be High-risk individuals uh, up front is is something uh, uh, we need to look at because right now we don't even have a sense of what the proportion of the population is actually immune to uh, COVID-19 at this point. Uh, so we those kinds of studies also need to be conducted so we get a really accurate sense of what the picture is. Will we need mass testing for that to happen? Yes. So uh, mass testing, in my opinion, is the the gateway for for anything, right? So we need to know mm-hmm. exactly how many people, or have a fairly realistic approximation, not between two percent and fifty percent of the population being affected. Uh, we want to get some realistic estimate of 
how many people in the population, because then that informs our understanding of the dynamics of this particular infection and how we can go about uh, uh, enacting some additional public health measures to make sure that we we sort of keep everybody in check. Uh, Those who are infected, who have those mild symptoms, who may not need to go to the doctor, uh, we need to know uh, a better percentage of those people uh, before we continue on with anything else. Dr. Todd Coleman has been with us, Ph.D. Assistant Professor, Department of Health Sciences, Wilfrid Laurier University. Todd, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Stay well. Thank you. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Let's bring in our next guest, uh, Val Snook Pond. She was with We Feed the Need Initiatives. To find out more, Val is with us now. Val, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. I'm sorry I butchered your last name. That's all right. That's all right. So talk about We Feed the Need and how this all got started. Tell, tell everybody what it is. We Feed the Need Hamilton is the community organization focused on supporting restaurants and business owners um, in the community while also um, recognizing and showing appreciation for our, our hardworking frontline staff. I became involved with it um, by collaborating with other champions of the community because we all really saw that, um, you know, our, our, the businesses here are struggling because of the economic crisis happening right now. And, you know, that, that's just um, something that we wanted to address because before this all happened, we know that Hamilton is such a vibrant community. Like just recently, it was listed on Forbes um, as one of the top places that, that has been undiscovered as places to explore. So, you know, wow. it's such a thriving scene, but it's really hurting right now. And that was really, you know, the one, the one incentive. And then on the other hand, recognizing that through this pandemic, there are so many people out there in healthcare and around the community, you know, your, your grocery clerk, your, your bus driver, sanitation worker, all those people that are really going above and beyond every single day for us. And we really wanted to kind of bring those two components together um, to support our community. So how does this work then? What happens? Tell everybody what, what, this is a great idea. What happens? So we created a GoFundMe page to raise um, funds for this initiative. So what happens is that uh, all the donations that come through, uh, they go directly to support our restaurant partners. So that's, you know, it goes to support them in buying their supplies, employing the staff that they have on hand, preparing the meals, individually packaging them and delivering them to recipient organizations. Um, and, you know, on, on that side of things, by recipients, like some of the um, people that I've mentioned already, so our healthcare workers, our frontline staff, first responders, first responders, essential workers, like all those people who've been tirelessly working to care for us and support us through this. So it gets delivered to them. Um, and then also we uh, are looking at, um, you know, our in-need populations as well and supporting them where we can. So basically, the, you go to the FundMe page, go FundMe page, yeah. you donate money, and you make a contribution there. Then that money goes to uh, restaurants that are participating in this. They create meals, and then these meals are sent to these people on the front lines. Is that accurate? That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a great idea. This is, this is great because not only does it help the restaurants, but it helps the frontline workers as well. Yeah, like that, that's really important. I think, you know, um, they're, they're doing such great work. And um, the, the first, very first delivery that we had, like we're very proud that it was to St. Peter's at Shadok, which is a long-term care resident uh, 
And, and, you know, they're working through such challenging times right now, but they show up every day to um, provide, you know, unbelievable care for our loved ones. And we really wanted to acknowledge and um, show our appreciation for the work that they're doing. So um, we worked with Salt Licks uh, Smokehouse on, on that, and uh, we delivered 50 meals to them last week. So talk about some of the restaurants that are involved in this and how do they get involved? Sure. So the restaurants that we have so far had, um, who have signed up to be partners, um, as I said, Salt Lick. We have My Pie, who um, have the, you know they they have that deep dish pizza there that uh, you know I'm sure a lot of us are trying to um, get a hold of. Um, also, Johnny Blonde, who they're doing a delivery for us tomorrow. Um, Hamburger, uh, Hammerheads, Blend Catering, Mystic Ramen, La Piazza Allegra, Sasso Pizza. So those are some of the partners now. Um, so again, if um, any other restaurants want to become involved, we, we you know always welcome that because we want, would like to support as many businesses as we can, um, and they can visit our webpage at uh, wefeedtheneed.ca. And obviously, this all starts with a GoFundMe page because this na- this takes money in order to drive all of this initiative. So, how easy is that to to get on to get involved in, and what do listeners need to do to participate? Yeah, they, again, um, they, yeah, we, we would appreciate any donation that, um, anyone can make or to help, uh, share our message. Um, you know, if they're looking for a way to, like, thank their grocery clerk, uh, bus driver, sanitation worker, or any other, um, incredible staff or healthcare worker out there, like, this is how they can, they can do that because we'll, we'll be helping to facilitate that. All they do is, um, visit our website at wefeedtheneed.ca. And there's a donate button on there, and that will take them directly to our GoFundMe page where they can make a contribution. Give us that address one more time. It's wefeedtheneed.ca. Wefeedtheneed.ca to to find out more. Now, are you surprised by the response here? Because, you know, it's amazing how restaurants just jump on this. I mean, the restaurant industry in Hamilton is unbelievable. Uh, I'm not surprised at all because, you know, I think, um, you know, we're very lucky to be in this community and, uh, the, the business owners that are here, they're committed to the community and they do that in, in good times as well. Like it's not just now that they're stepping up, but they've always been there for us. Like when you think about the great meals and things that you've celebrated before, uh, most of the times you probably have celebrated with them. And, you know, um, aside from that, they've also, done many things around the community to, to you know, support um, different organizations, like, um, because they, they care so much about Hamilton. So I'm not surprised at all, and, and it, it's fabulous that uh, they've, they've signed up um, to work on this with us. And a lot of times, you know, um, they, 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 they just wanted to, to donate things, and, you know, obviously that, that's very um, thoughtful, but we're here to, to try to support them and, and, and like I said, all, all the other um, essential workers out there. We feed the need.ca to find out more and uh, raising money in order to uh, funnel through restaurants who make uh, meals for those out on the front lines keeping us safe. What a great idea, Val. Good luck. Congratulations with this. Thanks for helping us share the message. Uh, the Canadian Medical Association Foundation is making a landmark donation of $20 million that will impact every area of the healthcare field from med students to frontline workers. To talk more about all of this, Alison Seymour is with us of the Canadian Medical Association Foundation and is on the line now. Alison, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Happy to be here. Tell us what the Canadian Medical Association Foundation is. Uh, well, the, we are the uh, philanthropic arm of the Canadian Medical Association, and as such, we are committed to 
really delivering healthcare excellence and working on initiatives and programs with our funding partners to ensure that we are really driving meaningful impact and change on issues uh, of uh, importance both to the profession, our physician members, and to uh, the population of Canada. And tell us about this $20 million donation. Well, it's very, uh, very significant donation, certainly unprecedented for uh, for the foundation, uh, and it's very significant uh, on a number of fronts, I would say. Uh, it certainly is reflective of the urgency of the crisis and the ever-increasing needs in terms of our frontline healthcare workers, and we want to ensure that we are um, also impacting at scale. So we really want to make sure that the donation was of a, of a magnitude that we could meet the needs and support uh, healthcare professionals across the system. So as you mentioned in your introduction, the medical students and residents, the physicians on the front line in hospitals and community-based hospitals, as well as their virtual clinics, and as well internationally abroad who are still working very hard for us. How was this money raised? Well, as a philanthropic arm of the CMA, we are supported by them. So it's not we're not a fundraising uh, foundation. Right. We are supported by the Canadian Medical Association. And how do you decide where this money goes? Well, that is very much uh, a factor of where the needs are presenting themselves. So, for example, with the students and uh, residents, we have been working with university partners in the medical 17 medical schools across Canada for uh, many years now, actually. And uh, through conversations with them, we were certainly hearing about the financial stresses, increased financial stresses that were presenting for the students and residents with the uh, the onset of COVID. And so the bursaries that we are, that there's just over $5 million that will be dispersed through bursaries to students in financial need. With the family physicians, uh, that again is through a partnership uh, with the Foundation for Advancing Family Medicine, and they are the philanthropic arm of the College of Family Physicians. And what they what they were communicating to us was, uh, now that family physicians are working in very new ways in order to keep themselves safe, but also deliver quality patient care, so they're working virtually and, and through telemedicine, they are looking for innovative ways to continue to do you know good work. And and so the grants that we will be funding through that foundation will support that innovation, but also longer-term impact for the healthcare system. And then, of course, front, frontline healthcare providers in the hospitals, that was a very big one. And, and so we committed $10 million to those initiatives, both for the uh, frontline fund that was announced today uh, for the larger hospitals, and then we will set up our own fund to support the community-based hospitals that serve the rural, rural and remote communities. How important is this funding at this time, considering what has happened with COVID-19? I would say it is extremely important. Uh, despite all of the you know the efforts and certainly the great work that people are doing in terms of staying staying home and and uh, socially distant, uh, and we're seeing some really good tr- trends certainly in Ontario. We still are, there's still a very much uh, a crisis of need on the front line and a lot of pressure and stress that our healthcare providers are under as they as this continues to evolve. So it really is uh, you know significant for us to be making this commitment at this time. And as I said, it's not only just to address the urgency of the needs that are presenting now and will continue to evolve, but the longer-term impact as we move into a recovery phase as well. 
Uh, this has certainly been um, uh, one of those events, crisis, whatever you want to call it, pandemic that has thrown our healthcare workers uh, onto the front lines and has brought a lot of the inadequacies to uh, to people's attention. What do you think we're going to learn from all of this, Allison? Well, those are conversations that are definitely having uh, we're having right now, and uh, certainly we're seeing some of the the issues that the CMA was very focused on accelerating in terms of you know the the importance of virtual care and the ability to you know uh, add capacity to the system. So I think there's going to be a lot of takeaways as we go forward that we will want to ensure are embedded in the system in terms of the recovery. Uh, but, um, you know, really right now we want to ensure that uh, the needs of our frontline healthcare providers are met uh, in terms of coping with the crisis and that they're kept safe uh, and uh, able to still deliver the excellent care that, that they do. Allison Seymour has been with us from the Canadian Medical Association Foundation. The Canadian Medical Association Foundation making a landmark donation, $20 million that will impact every area of the healthcare field from med students right to frontline workers. Allison, thanks so much for the time and insight. Good luck moving forward. Be well. Thank you. You as well, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP, Canadians for Affordable Energy, and he is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, Is there any reason why our politicians can't be meeting virtually during all of this? Why is this such a hassle? Why is this such a big deal? Well, I think it's a question of accountability. It has nothing to do with the uh, virus itself or concerns over it uh, virtually speaking i think if uh, your children and mine can do this via zoom or skype or whatever the case may be then you know we have the technology to be able to accommodate something like that and uh you know but I, i'm still not uh, happy of course that uh, the house is only sitting once a week it should be two or three times a week just uh, well now they're talking about one virtual and or sorry one real two virtual yeah i know but it should be three real and uh you know, you don't have to bring in all 338. You can bring in a third of that proportional to the number of seats they have and then get. I was watching this go down yesterday and it was actually pleasant to watch because it was the leaders doing their thing. There was nobody else, you know, hooting and hollering and jumping up and down. It was yeah. it was great to see this. No, and we need to hear what's happening. This is the most serious crisis to confront our country likely since the Second World War and economically, certainly since the Great Depression. So. By all accounts, uh, you know, I think it requires a higher degree of uh, transparency and openness. Uh, and it isn't about, you know, uh, saying someone is irresponsible because they are, uh, you know, potentially exposing people to uh, this virus. I mean, That's it's a reality silly. that is there. Members of Parliament haven't exactly been sitting inside their homes all, uh, you know, sheltered. Uh, members have been out communicating, not necessarily going door to door, but certainly uh, doing functions where they can. They, they certainly go to the grocery store. Uh, so, look, I, I don't think this is a big deal. Uh, and I think uh, the reluctance by the Prime Minister and his allies, and I call them allies, the Green Party and the NDP and the Bloc, uh, look, those guys are going to act together. It doesn't matter what happens from this point forward until this Parliament ends. Uh, those three parties are really lining up on the same side of virtually every issue. And uh, so when you hear one speak, you might as well take it uh, to mean that it's the Liberal government speaking. And uh, those who oppose it and uh, those who rightfully say the democracy of this country and accountability is extremely important, I think are on the right track. Uh, there's no one here 
that wants to make things any worse than they are. But we've seen from the prime minister's behavior, you know, in terms of trying to pull fast ones, like, you know, acquiring more powers than he actually has, has or was proposed. Well, the there you hit the nail right on that. You hit the nail on the head right there, Dan. I mean, you know, he's he's wondering why everybody's making this big hullabaloo about all of this when the first time this happened and he they went into Parliament the first time they were called back, he tried to pull a fast one and hold power until uh, like 2021, like 21 yep. months, I think it was, yeah. and, and then have unlimited spending. It's like, this is a minority government. So he's trying to pull a fast one right off the top, and then he's wondering why people want to ask questions. I can't believe it. Well, they've been two to three weeks behind, apart from their shenanigans and their, their slyness. I think my concern now becomes, what's the plan? You, 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 where's the man with the plan? There is no plan. Uh, and I appreciate the fact that they have been diligent working with the bureaucrats and with civil servants in terms of getting checks out to people, and uh, more needs to be done on that front. But I think if you want to make this a perfect beast, you want to make sure it works as well as possible, you're going to have to get input from all sides, whether you like it or not. Because at the end of the day, uh, being the party that came second in terms of popular vote doesn't exactly endear you to many people who believe that you are not their choice. Uh, you know, the vast majority of people in this country did not vote for that government. So it's extremely important that the will of the people and the wishes of the people in this kind of emergency circumstance be taken into consideration. All the more reason to have that form of accountability. And no, it doesn't have to be partisan. But what it has to be is the ability for this prime minister to develop a consensus. And that doesn't mean talking to his progressive pals over the NDP block and green, because there is a, another side to many of the stories in this country. And I find it a little weird because I stood in a position of emergency crises before. When I handled the consular cases of Canadians who were facing life and death situations, many of them uh, in, in countries abroad, uh, it was truly amazing when I would reach out to the opposition to say, how would you go about this and take part of this? we would wind up with a far stronger position, not just with uh, among parliamentarians of various stripes. Uh, Scott, we wound up in a situation where even the media was working with us, and I left it very much in the situation where I think it should be today, and that's that we have all uh, parties involved in the decision-making and how we deploy this for best results on behalf of the Canadians we all represent. And that's the point. Every one of those members of Parliament collectively represent 100% of the Canadians out there. And right now, it sounds like it's only going to be limited, sort of part-time and on occasion and as we get around it. But I think there's some good issues out there. They don't have to be partisan. And I think the public will, will certainly chastise and be harsh on people who try to be partisan in this kind of opportunity. At the same time, the public has every reason to be concerned about the Prime Minister and his defenders, apparently, in the media who think that it's uh, it's okay to have a very limited form of democracy in the most crucial time of our generation. Dan McTagg with us, former Liberal MP, Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, let's talk about the oil prices uh, zero. What does this mean? Where does this go? <laughs> well, it really means uh, the extent to which there has been damage brought about by the pandemic means the world's most vital commodity has taken a beating, especially in North America, where there is concern about storage, about inventory, and that uh, overproduction is now leading to uh, a scenario where they're basically paying people to take what oil is out there because they can't slow the oil production down on a dime. It takes months, if not several uh, quarters, to be able to shut down a, 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 an oil production facility. And at the same time, you still have uh, the, our, our, our wonderful, uh, for lack of a better term, morons, in OPEC, in Saudi Arabia and Russia, who thought it was a brilliant idea 
to uh, flood the market when, in fact, the market was already saturated. So those uh, cutbacks, which are too little too late, because they only make up maybe about a quarter to a third of all the excess production that is happening globally, don't take effect until May 1st. And so we're still seeing a scenario where the world is flooded and uh, these prices reflect that. Now, having said that, thankfully, we're at the end of the contract period, which is for May the June contract comes momentarily, and that's already starting to show a little bit of sign of return to what I consider to be normality, and that's five, six bucks a barrel. That also signals that the market is saying, hey, we know the COVID virus won't be around forever. We know sooner or later uh, the economy will get back up and running globally, and that means that uh, these prices are going to have to start to reflect uh, a reality from five or six weeks from now. So what happens as this slowly unwinds and we slowly get back to normal? Will will obviously, as you said, and you know, you were talking about uh, we we're talking about airplanes uh, and jets and, and air travel uh, earlier on. It's bizarre to even stand outside your house and knowing that planes take a certain route and they're they're just not there anymore. We, we're just not even seeing this. So once we get down the backside and things start to open up, what are we going to see with oil prices? Well, look, it's before going into this, 49% of the value of your exports, merchandise exports, uh, was oil uh, and oil-related. Uh, then you'd have to think that in order to get back to the point where you want to be, you get the economy running up and being able to pay for all of these uh, financial commitments that governments, federal, provincial, to some extent even municipal, have been committing themselves to, you're going to have to find a quick way to generate funds in order to stave off the need to hit people with taxes to pay this all back or to withstand what could be uh, bondholders coming in and saying we want money uh, and we want more than just uh, the 2% you're giving us. We're going to want 10%, 8%. In other words, hit us with higher mortgage rates or credit card rates, etc. The government really doesn't have much of a choice here. It has to back its winner. The golden goose of this country, whether you like it or not, whether you happen to be a woke climate uh, type guy who thinks that we can just you know, wish these things away, uh, the thing that supported our programs, our, 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 our well-being uh, from coast to coast, not just the province of Alberta, not just the province of Newfoundland, has been oil. And so for that reason alone, uh, I would expect that the Prime Minister should be held to account, ironically in terms of the over discussion we just had, as to why he's not actually funding and helping uh, this industry uh, through a very difficult time, at which when it emerges, it'll be pretty, pretty much the main engine that pulls us out of this recession. Uh, when we're watching the uh, the Prime Minister's press conference, uh, he's often asked about aid for uh, Alberta and such, and, and probably more so up until uh, recently when he uh, announced that they would give money to clean up uh, old abandoned wells and such. Uh, I guess this is b- being received well out west simply because this is a problem that nobody wanted to address. But what does this do for the industry? Well, I think it isn't being received very well at West. I think it's being seen as irrelevant. And although we saw initial responses by uh, uh, the Alberta government, that was, yeah, that's a nice thing. It's uh, what are you going to do to get to help this industry prevent it from collapsing? So that when there is a recovery, it's actually viable and can get back up and do what it has. Yeah, this it's not- this money doesn't seem to be directed towards any sort of recovery. No. If anything, it's the opposite. No, it's closure. This is about sending a climate issue. Uh, that I think is a long-term proposal that we have to make. By the way, I've had many exchanges with people, uh, both in terms of interviews as well as uh, on Twitter, and you can follow, follow me there at uh, Gas Price Wizard, where people are saying, oh, well, you know, we shouldn't give them any money. Uh, well, that's fine. And yes, we should be paying for these orphan wells. Well, my point is that if you're using anything to do with plastics or anything you've used since you were born, 
where you've used Canadian oil to produce any product that we t- now take advantage of. Well, you know, a lot of those products came uh, without the uh, without the re- the financial price tag of cleaning up these wells. So uh, I'm suggesting that if people think that way, they should offer up uh, what how much they want to be taxed in order to uh, pay for this thing. But it's a long-term proposal. It will be looked after, but it's not something that you can do overnight. And it has absolutely nothing to do. It's completely irrelevant to the crisis at hand. At hand, the, the real issue here is that people are navel-gazing and saying, well, that's okay, we can, we can get rid of 49% of our uh, value of our exports and merchandise. Yeah, we can just do without it, no problem. You know, hmm. Anybody who thinks that had better be prepared to stand up in soup and kitchen lines and relief lines come the summer, because that's where this country is going. If it doesn't have the means to pay back all the money that it's spending, if it doesn't have the jobs and the, uh, the services and the momentum and the investments in coming into this country, uh, we're in a very serious economic depression, the likes of which we haven't seen since the 1930s. Like it or not, How- them's the facts. How long can these prices stay at this level? Again, you said once demand, you know, we have to remember here there's no demand because nobody's working, nobody's doing anything. As things slowly open up, you, you think that's going, that, that, that has to change. Uh, any well, idea how long after we start to see things moving, we'll start to see prices go up? When will we see this move up? By most estimates, the amount of demand destruction is nearing 75%. So that means, you know, we're not using three-quarters of the amount of fuel, heating, et cetera, that we used uh, just a month and a half, two months ago, or what we traditionally used at this time, that will come back. And whether it's the entire 75% of it is optimistic, but even if 50% uh, demand starts to spring back, which is an easy objective uh, just by pent-up demand alone and people going to work the first morning. Uh, but the reality, I think, is that we as Canadians have to ask our question, do we want Saudi Arabia to be supplying us going forward our energy? Or do we want Canadians doing so? And if it is a Saudi Arabian or U.S. or whoever, or Russia, then expect your dollar to fall. Expect the cost of living to rise. Expect the taxes to have to cover uh, the debts that you've incurred. And, of course, uh, be careful. If you don't have a job and you don't get a raise, you're not going to beat your mortgage commitments. And that could be a problem for the entire country, whether we like it or not. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP and Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Stay safe. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.